reading today from page uh, 61 in our church Bibles, and we're going to be reading Exodus chapter 5, all the way through to verse 27 of Exodus uh, chapter 6. So Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to work, your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. The same day, Pharaoh gave his order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw. Yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. But they left Pharaoh. They found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohor, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amran, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziah. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merai were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amran married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amran lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzziah were Mishai, Elazaphan, and Sifri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Iphamah. The sons of Korah were Asar, Elkanah, and Abisath. These were the Kohahite clans. Eliezer, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. And we ask that God will bless his word. Thank you, Pete. And well done. It's not the easiest of readings, is it? But well done. Please keep your Bibles open. That will be really helpful as we um, go through this passage together this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we've already been singing about how holy you are. Holy, holy, holy. You are so different to us, uh, beyond us, greater than us. And yet we've also been singing how we want to see you this morning. And we pray that as we look at your word together now, that you would speak to us and that we would know you. And we pray that as we see you, our hearts would be filled with praise and that we would love being your people and love living as your people. Amen. Can you think of a time when doing the right thing has made life harder, not easier? Back in September, I wanted to start running again. And I hadn't done regular exercise for a while, so I knew it would be good for me, both mentally and physically. And so starting back running was the right thing to do. But after only eight weeks, my knee was so painful that I couldn't do any more. And so now I'm still not doing any regular exercise, and I've got a bad knee. My aunt told me, she said, Matt, that's what happens when you get to 35. Oh, thanks, Auntie Jenny. That wasn't very encouraging. Running again has made my life harder, not easier. And it can also be true of the Christian life. Sometimes doing the right thing and obeying God makes life harder, not easier. So maybe since becoming a Christian, your family don't seem to understand you. You try to explain the change, but they just seem to move further away. Life has become harder, not easier. Or you know that as a parent, God has given you the responsibility of teaching your children about Jesus. But it's hard to stop doing what you want to do to make time to read the Bible with them. Life has become harder, not easier. Perhaps you're trusting God's plan for marriage, and so you've remained single instead of chasing after relationships with people that would draw your heart away from Jesus. And so life has become harder, not easier. You know that God loves a cheerful giver. And so over the last few years, you've been giving sacrificially, giving money sacrificially to the church. But this month, money is tight. You're feeling the strain and you're wondering whether you should have kept more money back for yourself. Life has become harder, not easier. Your friends at school, they often make jokes that mock other people. But you want to be like Jesus, to be kind and to love others. Refusing to join in makes you stand out. Life has become harder, not easier. Maybe others in the workplace make their career number one. But like Jesus, you want to put other people first. You want to care for your family ahead of your career. However, leaving work on time doesn't always go down well with your boss. And so life has become harder, not easier. Your retired friends have done so many good things in their lives. But God says that their only hope is not in their good things but only in Jesus. But when you try to talk to them about their sins and that their only hope is to trust in Jesus, they turn on you and they turn away from you. Life has become harder, not easier. When your friends realize that you believe in God's intentions for sexuality and gender, they think you're radical and even bigoted. Life has become harder, not easier. 
day by day, the battle with temptation, a persistent battle with a particular sin. It's slow progress, and it sometimes feels like no progress. Perhaps you're 80 years old and still battling. Life has become harder, not easier. We could go on and on and on. There are times when obeying God makes life harder, not easier. And it begs the question, is obeying God worth it? Well, if that's a question that you sometimes find yourselves asking, if you want to know whether obeying God is worth the cost, if you want hope for the Christian life, if you want to keep going as a Christian through the hard times, then good news, because today we are going to see where help is found. We're going to see that when obeying God makes life hard, remember the Lord, our Redeemer. When obeying God makes life hard, remember the Lord, our Redeemer. We're back in Egypt where we've seen God's people are in miserable slavery. But God has seen it too. And he's getting ready to rescue his people. Moses and Aaron have been commissioned by God as his messengers to Pharaoh. And they've received the backing of Israel. So the end of chapter 4 tells us, Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. What relief! What excitement! After 400 years in Egypt, they are going back to their land. No more slavery. No more groaning. The Lord is on the move. God is about to do it. It's victory time. And so Moses obeys God and he goes to Pharaoh. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. What makes you think that someone like me, says Pharaoh, who is worshipped as a god by my own people, is going to listen and obey the god of my slave people? And I imagine Moses and Aaron looking at each other with fear in their eyes, thinking, this is not what we had planned. What do we do now? Try asking more nicely, perhaps? And say, verse 3, Please, Pharaoh, the god of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Moses is beginning to wander off script and it's still not enough to persuade Pharaoh. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses entered the palace with confidence, but he leaves with his tail between his legs. The battle lines are being drawn. But it's not a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh is going toe-to-toe with the Lord. Last weekend, there was a massive boxing match. Two men going toe-to-toe, fighting for the crown of heavyweight champion of the world. There could only be one winner, and so it proved. One of them ended up on the canvas. The other ended up as the champion. And that's what we've got going on here in Exodus. In one corner, we've got Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And in the other corner, we've got the Lord, the God of the Bible. 
there can only be one winner. There can only be one champion. Pharaoh is good at spouting out lots of pre-fight trash talk. Who's the Lord to tell me what to do? Doesn't he know who I am? This is my country. I'm in charge. There's only one king round here. He talks about them as his people. They're not his people. They're my people, my slaves. Now, there are lots of people who live today just like Pharaoh. And I'm sure some of us here this morning live like Pharaoh. Who's the Lord to tell me what to do? This is my life. I'm in charge. Well, if that's you, keep on listening and see how Pharaoh gets on going toe-to-toe with God. As the bell rings for the first round, Pharaoh gets the first punch away. So verse 10, this is what Pharaoh says. It's an echo of verse 1. In verse 1, we have this is what the Lord says. And now this is what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh wants everyone to know. In Egypt, Pharaoh is God, and don't you forget it. And here, says Pharaoh, is my new regime, verse 10. I will not give you any more straw for your brick-making. Go and get your own straw, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. And so God's people have to scatter through the whole of Egypt, working all hours of the day to scavenge for stubble. Stubble is the little bit of straw that's left in the ground after the harvest. And he's plucking out of the ground. It's back-breaking work. And back in the brick factory, the people are pushed to their limits. Verse 13. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. Pharaoh demands that his pyramids keep growing at the same rate, higher and higher. And so the spirits of God's people sink lower and lower. It's an impossible task. All that talk of deliverance, were the Israelites dreaming? It seems miles off. In fact, it seems further away than ever. Moses has obeyed God, but things are getting harder, not easier. Sometimes obeying God makes life hard. Now, Pharaoh must be sat in his palace smiling. He's been very clever. He had a clear plan. So look at verse 9. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Pharaoh wants the Israelites to stop believing Moses and to stop believing God, to treat God's rescue plan as a lie. And Pharaoh's plan is working. The suffering is so great that the foreman goes straight to Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh refuses to listen, they turn on Moses, the so-called rescuer. What a great job he's done. The people have no confidence in Moses or God's rescue. Even Moses begins to lose confidence in God. So verse 22. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses lays the blame firmly at God's feet. He says, I've done my part, and things have got harder. These are your people. It's your plan, your problem. But Moses shouldn't be surprised 
at what's happened. If you were here last week, then you won't be surprised that things have got harder. We saw back in chapter 3, verse 19, that God had already said Pharaoh would not listen. Pharaoh would harden his heart. But instead of remembering God's words, Moses begins to blame God. In many ways, Moses is just like us. We know what we think God should do, and then when God does something else, we can get grumpy. Well, God's response to Moses is amazing. God doesn't tell Moses to go away or to cheer up or to get a grip. God isn't snappy or angry or dismissive. The Lord is amazingly gentle. He reaffirms his name, his character, and his promise. Now, it can be annoying when you share your problem with someone, your problem with someone, and they use it as an opportunity to talk about themselves. Oh, I had a similar problem once. Did I tell you about the time when I did this? And let me tell you what worked for me. Maybe you know what that feels like. There are times when you kind of wish you hadn't shared your problem at all. But when we share our problems with the Lord, the most reassuring thing he can do is to talk about himself. Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? And that is exactly what Moses needs to remember. He has forgotten who the Lord is. When obeying God makes life hard, we need to remember the Lord. God reminds Moses who he's dealing with. It tops and tails this section in chapter 6. So look at verse 2. I am the Lord. And at the end of verse 8, I am the Lord. The Lord in capital letters is the name of God that we were introduced to last week in chapter 3. The Lord isn't a title, it's God's personal name, Yahweh, I am who I am. And it shows the uniqueness of God. If God had said, I am strong, we would think of the strongest person we know and think that God is like them. If God had said, I am loving, we would think of the most loving person that we know and think God is like them. But God is unique. God cannot be defined in reference to other people. God defines himself. I am who I am, the Lord. Pharaoh thinks he can take God on. But God is unrivaled. He's in a league of his own. God wants Moses and the Israelites to know who he is. And he's going to show them by what he does. This is something that happens throughout the Bible. God displays his character by what he does. Here in chapter 6, God tells his people what he's going to do and then the end result of it. So look at chapter 6, verse 7. I will do all of this and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. The Lord's actions will show who he is and help us to know him. It's something that's true of all of us. We display our character by what we do. It's why we sometimes use the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Last weekend, I made a trip to visit my grandma and granddad. Grandma turned 89 this week and granddad is 92. And yet, amazingly, despite both having kind of significant health difficulties, they're both still living at home together on their own. 
but it's only made possible because of the help of my uncles and aunts, particularly Uncle Norman. Every day, Uncle Norman takes time to call in to see how they are and to help out. It takes so much time out of his day every day, but his actions clearly show how much he cares for them, his parents, his compassion, and his commitment to them. He displays his character by what he does, and that's how God works. He displays his character by what he does. I would do all of this, says God, then you will know. Those three, the, those three words, you will know, they flow like a river beneath everything that happens in the whole book of Exodus. And so as we're going through the book of Exodus, we need to keep on asking that question, what does this show me about God? And today, over 3,000 years later, if we want to know God, we need to look back and watch him in action. That's why when God acts to rescue his people from slavery, he's going to be revealing himself in a new way. That's what I think God is saying in verse 3. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. It's not that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know God's name, but rather God is going to show what it means for him to be the Lord in a new way, in a bigger way, showing new levels of compassion and commitment to his people. And it's exciting. It means that here in Exodus, we get to see something new about God. Again, this is often how God works in the Bible. Theologians call it progressive revelation or cumulative revelation. One layer building up on top of another. When I was reading this, it made me think of an opera cake. If you've ever watched Bake Off, you might know what an opera cake is. It's a cake with loads of different layers. And that's partly the idea of cumulative revelation. One layer of knowledge about God, followed by another, by another. But perhaps a better idea is a, a photo negative. I mean, the young people have probably never seen one. They're kind of quite redundant nowadays, aren't they? Um, I remember kind of if you wanted a photo printed, reprinted, you might hold up the negative trying to see what it is. Uh, looking into the light, trying to see the picture. You can make out the shape and the outline, but not the details. Developing that negative makes all the difference. Now you can see the colors, the details. It was all there in the negative, but the picture hasn't changed. But we see things we never saw before. And the story of Exodus is like that like an opera cake being layered up or a photo being developed. It's God showing us more of who he is. It's not a change in who he is, but we see things about God that we never saw before, and it's exciting. And the time has come for God to show in a new way what it means for him to be the Lord. He's going to do it through his actions. There won't be any doubt. You will know. Just watch. Verses 4 and 5 tell us what God has already done. He's made a promise to give his people their own land, and Operation New Land is underway. The present experience might be groaning, but the promise is not forgotten. God says, I have heard and I have remembered. And now, once again, as in earlier chapters, God repeats what he's going to do. He repeats it because, like us, Moses and the people of Israel 
forget who God is and what he's like. And so it's great that the Lord is a promise-making, promise-keeping, and promise-repeating God. Now look at verse 6, this great promise of God. God says, Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I will, I will, I will, seven times. God will act and God will make himself known. And right at the heart of this action, the thing that draws it all together is a phrase there in verse 6. I will redeem. This is specifically what Moses needs to remember. He needs to remember that the Lord is our redeemer. Now, redeem is a big Bible word. We sometimes use the word today when we talk about redeeming voucher codes or gift cards. But Bible words have Bible meanings. It's important to see how the Bible uses the word redeem. And maybe it's not surprising that the Bible uses the word in three main ways that kind of layer up onto each other, developing its meaning. And these verses in Exodus help us to see one of the ways the Bible uses the word redeem. They show that redeem means buying back at great cost or reclaiming at a price. So look again at verse 6. It tells us what God will redeem his people from. So it says, verse 6, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. God will redeem his people from the pain of slavery and the slavery itself. And then verse 7, God will redeem his people to be with him. God says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This is God's great plan and purpose. Not just to redeem his people from slavery, but to bring them to himself. So how? How will God redeem? Well, it's there at the end of verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. When God rolls up his sleeves to redeem his people, he will do it through judgment. And we see more of that next week. But this is exactly what Moses needs to hear. Moses obeyed God and things got harder, not easier. God says, remember Moses, I am the Lord your Redeemer and I will do it. Look forward, redemption is coming and it's going to come through you. So in chapter 6, verses 10 to 30, the Lord recommissions Moses. Weak and reluctant Moses is the man that God is going to use. And I think that's why the genealogy is there. I think all of those names are listed to show that Moses and Aaron are ordinary people that God has chosen. Like the rest of Israel, God has made them from dust. Like the rest of God's people, they get discouraged. 
Moses is supposed to have been reassured by God's words, but he's still scared. And so there's no doubting who the hero is. It's not Moses. It's our Lord, our Redeemer. Well, as always, God is true to his word. And so today, when we obey God and things get harder, not easier, we can look back. We can look back and see how God did redeem his people in the Exodus. And we can see in the Exodus a pattern of redemption that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God reveals his plan then so that when Jesus arrives, we can understand what he's doing. Like the people of Israel, we have a burden and slavery that we cannot free ourselves from. Jesus says that we are slaves to sin without the grace of God. Sin is our master and burdens us with guilt. Well, thank God he is the Lord, our Redeemer. God is not like Pharaoh, far away in his palace, isolated from suffering. Through his son, Jesus, God steps in to redeem by taking the judgment we deserve for our sin. Jesus willingly dies on the cross. The sins of the world laid onto the perfect Son of God, dying in humiliation and pain, separated and torn apart from his Father. Jesus willingly took the burden of our guilt so that it can be lifted from us. God's judgment fell on Jesus so that we can be forgiven of our sin. Jesus died to redeem us and reclaim us as his people, and his death is the great cost. We were helpless, and he has done it, so that all we have to do is trust in him. Who is the Lord? The Lord is the God who will stop at nothing to redeem his people. The God who buys us back at great cost. The God who gave his son to set us free and make us his own. And this is good news because we started this morning by thinking about times when obeying God makes life hard. But of course, none of us always obey God. There are many times that we don't choose the right way. We don't choose to obey God perhaps because we know it will be hard. And so instead, we choose to live the easy way. And at these moments, remember the Lord, our Redeemer. There is grace and forgiveness in Jesus. Maybe you never obey God. Maybe you live like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord and why should I obey him? Well, have you looked at Jesus? This is the Lord the one who gave his life to redeem you, to set you free. Today, you've got an opportunity to turn to the God who longs to redeem you, to have the burden of your guilt lifted off your back. And if that's what you want to do today, then please talk to me later or talk to a Christian friend. And if you're not ready for that, please come back over the coming weeks to see what happens to Pharaoh and see where fighting against God ends up. Well, we've seen this morning that there are many times when we obey God and life gets harder, not easier. And during those times when obeying God makes life hard, remember the Lord, our Redeemer. Look back, look at the Exodus. 
God did it. He kept his word. He redeemed his people from slavery to be with him. Look back and look at Jesus. The clearest photo of God is seen at the cross. His perfect justice and extraordinary love. God has done it once and for all. All those who trust in Jesus are freed from the punishment and power of sin. And look back and see God's redeeming work in your own life, forgiving your sin and freeing you from your guilt. God is with us now by his spirit, helping us walk in love and obedience. And look forward. One day, Jesus will return to complete his full and universal redemption. The whole of creation set free. A day when there will be no more burdens, no more guilt, no more sin, no more doubt. Who is the Lord? Well, on that day, everyone will know that the Lord is the Redeemer. And so today and this week, let's keep looking to the Lord, our Redeemer. Looking to Jesus, loving him, trusting him, obeying him, even when it's hard. Let's pray. I'm going to pray some words from Colossians chapter 1. May we be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you that you are a redeemer, a redeemer who has given your Son for us so that we can be freed from our guilt and our sin so that we can be with you. Help us never to forget who you are. Help us to love you, to trust you, and to live for you. Amen. Thank you.